But when a shadow emerges in our lives, it's good to interrogate and know, okay, there's some really bad things about this. No one wants a diagnosis of bipolar one. But what are the, what's the other side of it? What is the potential good that comes of it? of Monica Nandy. Join me as I chat with leaders across the fields of entrepreneurship, parenthood, health, and lifestyle. This season, we're digging deeper than ever before to learn the story behind the story. Think of the show as one part Audible MBA and one part certification to be the confident CEO of your own life. Here we go. Our guest today is someone very near and dear to my heart, the Andy to my Monica, my brother, Andy Dunn. Even before co-founding the e-commerce menswear brand Bonobos, Andy has been a huge source of inspiration in my life. And that is more true than ever as he opens up publicly about his mental health struggles. Today, we speak about our shared family history and Andy's journey with bipolar disorder, including how that both helped and hindered his entrepreneurial experience. I hope you take away a fresh perspective from this conversation. Welcome, Andy. Hi, thanks for having me. This is not the first podcast that you and I have done together. I think Andy was... Is it the third? I think it's the second. I have to go back and check. But I feel like you were the first guest in the first season that I ever did. So it was important to me that you're the first guest in the newest season that I did as well. Obviously, there's much people know about you from a business perspective, and we can get into all of that. But I thought it would be fun as we started to talk a little bit about our childhood and to give people a bit of a peek behind the scenes. Because I think that, you know, Andy has been one of my biggest personal and professional advisors, but I think, you know, we were really close as kids. And so tell everybody a little bit, anything you want to tell anybody about our childhood and sort of what shaped that friendship into adulthood. Should we talk about the flying off the bus incident? Let's do it. Okay. So, I mean, I don't know, maybe we could talk about what you remember. I remember being really excited because dad was coming to kindergarten class to give a talk about George Washington. And so I thought I would express that enthusiasm by not taking the steps down the bus, but simply flying Superman style from the top to the ground. I can't remember if you were behind me or in front of me, but there was some kind of a wound under my hairline. I remember dad getting yelled at for not noticing it when he came into the class, but somehow we got through that day. Yeah, we did. Actually, is now that you think about it, I feel like that was like one head injury. The other was the time that was it a pickleball racket? Let's not get into all my head injuries. Okay. And yeah, we came home and yeah. I was ahead of my time on pickleball <laughs> and on having no coordination. That's right. Yeah. we Neither of us were very coordinated. So I feel like that's fair. We should recap that one quickly too, which was like, it was kind of like an inside ball coming at me. <laughs> I got it back, but then the pickleball racket went straight into my forehead. And I don't even know if Bella knows this story, but kind of a Klingon like facial features head, which isn't really small to begin with um was at least like three times its size by the time we were we we came home that evening for sure i was a size 10 hat by the end of the night i think one of the things as i think back to our childhood is you know our parents were from two different cultures and i think in retrospect that shaped a lot of the relationship that we would have in the sense that we weren't quite the same as anybody we were what felt like at that time different and so i think as I think about it, for me, that was one of the things that, you know, you, as I looked around, you were someone that I felt similar to. And so I think that built part of the relationship. But 
I also think for the parents that are out there listening that think, oh my gosh, how do you get your children to to like each other, to be friends as adults? I think mom and dad deserve a lot of the credit for that in the sense that we probably fought for sure when we were little, but as adults, we supported each other more than we were ever competitive. Yeah. I think you get a lot of credit too, in addition to mom and dad, because I feel like the older sibling often sets the tone on what the sibling dynamic is going to be. And I feel like you were seeing the long game. I wasn't aware of being biracial until the window incident. Should we talk about that? Let's do it. Yeah. So what was it? I was probably freshman or sophomore in high school. And this kid who will remain nameless, but let's call him Ed for the record. Hi, Ed. I hope you're out there. Um, who was a friend. Yeah, I wonder if Ed even remembers. Yeah, Ed, are, if you're listening, let's just refresh your memory. So, Ed, you invented this nickname, Windu, which stood for White Hindu, which in retrospect is kind of funny, if you think about it. But it just, like, took off like wildfire. Uh, wildfire is a good nickname to us. And I came home to our very empathetic parents, and I described it, and they both just burst out laughing. I remember. Yeah, which only, like, deepened my self-pity. And then maybe you can like pick it up with yeah, where you took I it Yeah, I think that. I always felt protective and maybe that's just my personality. I've realized that. But having a younger brother, I remember, and I don't think I realized we were biracial either for a very long time. I just, I don't think, it was probably like fifth or sixth grade, I think until it, I, I realized it myself. But I remember it striking a chord at that point and anything that called out that differentiation like really upset me. Yeah. And so when I heard that, I thought, well, I can't let this happen until I remember calling somebody else and talking to the person that did it to say, hey, this can never happen again. You know, I was a cool junior at that point. So, you know, I felt like I could just go to this freshman and talk about it. But that would set the tone for a lot of things to come. Yeah, you pretty much shut that down. I did shut that down. And I think another thing that, for in my mind, brought us closer together was we were really fortunate to spend time as adults together, like as we finish college and actually get to spend time together on our own. And I think that also really helped to solidify our relationship. Yeah. To all those siblings out there looking to get closer, just name a company after yourself and your sibling. And it sort of (laughs) keeps it, keeps it tight. It keeps it real for sure. Andy, one of the things that I think back to, and let's talk for just a minute now about your entrepreneurial journey. I'm going to start about, I'm going to start this off from my perspective and then you can fill it in. As I remember, Andy was graduating from business school in 07 Mom and dad were extremely excited. You were going to have this great financial job. I remember you had multiple financial job offers. And then we came to your grad. I think in my mind, it was your dinner, one of the dinners at your graduation. It, yeah. it could have been in and around there at any point. And you said, hey, I'm not going to take any of those jobs. I'm actually going to start selling men's pants online. Yeah. And I remember thinking, mm, I don't know about this. But I remember mom and dad saying to me, you know, on the flight home, don't quit your day job because we think that you might end up having to support your brother because he thinks people are going to buy pants online. It just doesn't make any sense to us. Yes. And I think you did support me. I remember some like ATM runs, which was, (laughs) which was nice, but yeah, selling pants on the internet. I don't know. That was a dubious idea, but we made it work. It was a dubious idea and you did make it work. We've been on many journeys as a family. Yes, we have part of the business, part of them general things that families go through. But we've been on another pretty big journey as a family that we haven't, we've talked about many times together, but never publicly. Um, Since the last time that Andy was on the podcast, he's written a best-selling book called Burn Rate about his entrepreneurial journey as it coincided with mental illness. Andy, tell us a little bit about the journey that we were on. 
Well, I think one, one thing that was comforting as I got to the process of writing a book was realizing that if you have a mental health condition or some stripe of neurodiversity, it makes you more likely to be an entrepreneur. So I felt better about that. And so my particular affliction challenge journey has been with a mood disorder called bipolar disorder. And when I got to the data later, I guess it's something like two to 3% of the general population deals with some form of mood disorder. For entrepreneurs, that's like 11%. So it indexes five to one. And if you go through and look at ADHD, depression, OCD, substance use, other conditions like dyslexia, sadly suicide, all these things over-index in entrepreneurs. And in fact, I have a friend, um, a Brazilian guy who's been an entrepreneur. And at some point when I wasn't really able to yet talk about what the book was about, because it's a pretty um, heavy topic and one that I hadn't disclosed to so many people, he said, what's your book about? And so I had to kind of test how to describe it without going all the way there, or at least when I wasn't quite ready to. And I said, it's about entrepreneurship and mental illness. And he, without missing a beat, was like, aren't those the same thing? Uh, and they are and they aren't, right? The entrepreneurial journey is a roller coaster. And in my case, probably amplified in terms of the highs and lows by an underlying mental health condition. And so it was just amazing, you know, last year to have everyone's support, yours included, mom and dad, my wife, Manuela, everyone around kind of said, hey, it's time to be open about this. There's... Um, there's nothing to be ashamed of. And shame by definition is what, what is unspeakable. So the idea was, okay, let's expunge this shame by showing, hey, here's, here's the real story of what was going on, which I think is a heck of a lot more interesting than just selling pants on the internet. It is. And as I think back to it, I think one of the things that strikes me so much about the book, because I got to live it, but then I got to read it, yeah is that it was funny. I laughed out loud and I feel like there wasn't, it, it didn't feel that funny as we were going through a lot of yeah. it. So the fact that you were able to make light of certain parts of it, yeah. I thought, and even laugh at it myself was what was surprising. But let's, let's take us back a minute. Can I just talk about the comedic element of this? So who knows what will happen, but there is a amazing writer in Hollywood who has written a pilot for the book or inspired by the book. There's actually two interesting anecdotes about this. One is, and I don't know if you know this, I talked to mom about like, hey, how do you feel about a TV show? And she was like, look, first of all, we're at a point where I'm gonna support anything you wanna do. But also, I don't know if I can do it, <laughs> which was a classic mom, um, you know, dual, dual thoughts at the same time, which I appreciated. I said, how come? She said, well, I lived through it. Then I lived through the book. I'm not sure I can like see us all on screen for this. And I was like, okay, that makes sense. And I went back to the writer and I said, hey, why don't you do it as a inspired by rather than literally? And that will also give, a couple things would happen. One, the, the writer, and if it got picked up, anyone working on it would have the creative freedom to figure out where the story could go. That's, I would say, like from having read the pilot, way more interesting in a lot of ways and way more controversial. And then the second part, not being that annoying author who's like, that's not how it happened or wait, that's not something that Monica would have said and feeling so protective of the actual narrative. And what I've heard from folks in Hollywood as I'm getting to learn it is like the best thing an author can do for a movie or a TV show is write the book and get out of the way. So hopefully this will give us a chance to lean into it more because it's inspired by. So that's the first thing about it. The second thing about it is the writer who herself has dealt with some stuff you know, in the mental health world. I guess we all deal with things in the mental health world, but she's had some 
some really intense experiences, both personally and in her family. She said, you know, we've got to do this as a dark comedy because this shit is so hard that it's, we've got to treat it with some levity. And I was, I mean, if you think the book is funny, like I appreciate that. This pilot is hilarious <laughs> because if you step back, a lot of the things that, um, that are a part of the bipolar journey, messianic delusions, things you do and you're out of your mind, like it's tragic and it's also kind of hilarious as long as you get through it, right? As long as you come out on the other side. And I think the hardest thing about the process of accepting the diagnosis was just reading about the suicide rate. You know, 60% of people with bipolar one at some point attempt suicide, 21% end their own lives. And I don't think it's, it's normal to expect anyone between 18 and 25, which is typically when there's a diagnosis, like accept that as the stats. Like you're just too young. So we've got to do this work to take the amazing things that are happening in medication and treatments and therapy and psychiatry and move the conversation into the open because then we can catch it, we can talk about it, and we can diminish so much suffering. Um, and it's felt, in some ways it's felt like Bonobos was just a gateway to doing this mental health advocacy. It feels like it was just a beautiful, um, difficult, but a beautiful opportunity to take our collective suffering <laughs> and kind of put that out there on behalf of others. And you know, for anyone listening who is thinking about disclosing something in their journey or wondering what will happen if I put this out there, I can't say, I don't know. But what I can share is that for me, it was, there's so much love and acceptance for this. People connect so much more to our vulnerability than they do to our strength. Um, and it's, it's been a wonderful experience putting it out there. Absolutely. And I think from my perspective, I think that a few things, one, um, as I read the book, I think at some point, and I don't remember if this was when you were initially diagnosed when we were younger or this, the, the, as the time, as time built, when we were still younger, I'd like to consider like we're, we're still fairly young. So, but we were much younger at the very beginning. I think we, at some point you and I had a conversation and we described what happened as like you being on like the other side of the, you know, the wardrobe almost. Like, I, I don't remember if we were reading the Narnia books at the time, but it was like, I was on one side and you were on the other. And I think, and I don't think I've ever told you this before, but for me, the hardest part was always like, you were the person that I went to when something was wrong, yeah. the first person that I would call. And so as this happened, it was like, you were there, but I couldn't confer with you about what to do. Right. And that was such a struggle for me as, oh my gosh, here is like this person that I tell everything to as my yeah. sibling. And now, you know, something's not right with him. And who do you go and, 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 and get that advice from? And I think one of the big learnings and for people out there that are going through something like this, I think the idea that you can tell people what's really happening, like you would with any other illness. And I think that's one of the biggest mistakes that we made in retrospect or the things that we now know that we could have done better yeah. was like this idea that we didn't share any of it because we didn't even know how to talk about it. So I think yeah. having that conversation started where it's okay yeah. to talk about this stuff is such a big part of it because you feel very alone as you're going through it because yeah. you, you, you're, you're afraid to share it. Totally. And in a way, that's a great plug and an advertisement for one of the ways that I got healthier on the other side, which in addition to all the family love and support and medication, which is so critical for me, and sleep regimen. The other part of this for me in terms of staying healthy is seeing a psychiatrist who's also a therapist at least twice a week. 
And part of what I've learned from that is at some point, we probably all need that scaffolding or support of someone who, uh, to put it kind of in a, in a funny way, like who we pay to be our friend. My doctor jokes, he's not my friend. But when we're in crisis or someone in our family's in crisis, they can't be that go-to, right? And that could include with a physical ailment. If you've got someone in your family, as we've dealt with going through cancer, that person is not in a great position to be your support. You need to be there for them. And so that's why I'm such an advocate for therapy because it, it gives you someone who's not codependent emotionally, who is a paid professional, who's there to hear about your, your fears. And um, so just such a, such a big fan. And for anyone listening, would encourage you to consider it not as a, I've got this particular mental health condition that I need dealt with, but as like, I'm a human being. And the Buddha was onto something, right? Life is suffering. Not all the time. I think it's a bit of a grim view. But at some point, we all experience a mental health crisis, right? That could be the mental health crisis of a loved one. That could be a personal physical health issue, financial stress, a move, a breakup, divorce, the loss of a loved one. We all go through these different life experiences. And at that point, we are having a mental health crisis. And at that point, we should know that there are, there are resources out there, including um, mental health professionals. As one, as I think about the, I remember the, the first time that I sat in the, in the room and the doctor diagnosed you when we were 20 and 21, 22, whatever the age we were when that happened. And I remember as any people would do like denying it or thinking. And I remember at the time, because I, like, as I explained the, um, bipolar, I thought there's, I'm much more up and down than you seem to be at that time. It was like in, in my early 20s. And I thought, to me, it legitimately just didn't make sense. Like the way she was describing it didn't make sense to me. Right. But as I reflect on it now, with, with some of the journey behind us, yeah. I think I would want to take away your suffering if I could and the suffering that, we, that we've all had over it. But I don't think you would be a special of a person. And so one of my takeaways is that whatever the, and I don't always have the right way to say it, but whatever the mental health affliction or some of what we suffer as humans, yeah. I think you would not have created what you've done. As you said, there's so much about the entrepreneurial journey yeah. that is tied to, to mental illness. Yeah. And I don't think you would have been as brave to do what you did to start Bonobos or as brilliant as you've been. And the other side of that brilliance, there's just been a price for you. But outside of the suffering, I would say that's it's what's made you special. And so that's been a big learning for me. And I think that as we look at the future with our kids or as we learn things, what I didn't know is like the 21 year old sitting in that room that heard that diagnosis was that it wouldn't, it, it wasn't, it wasn't all bad. It was yeah. more the makeup of who you were. Yeah. And I wish, you know, that I could have seen some of that at that time, because I think as a family and a lot of that catharsis, as you wrote the book and read the book, and I think we even were in denial, not about the, the, not about bipolar as you wrote the book, but about our ability to have done things differently and better. I think that was the hardest thing to face because as a family, you think that you're doing the best. And I think we always rallied around Andy, but as we looked back on it, we did a lot to tell ourselves that that wasn't the case yeah. because it wasn't something that we wanted to be true. And unlike a really definitive diagnosis of cancer, even as we sat there with the doctor to begin with, it was like, it could be, it couldn't. And if it doesn't come back for X amount of time. And so 
I think as we look back on it, obviously there's a million things we could have done the same and would have done different. But the the acceptance of it for me is looking at like the bigger picture of all that's happened. Yeah, if it was a, if it had been a mystery TV show, there were a lot of red herrings, right? And for for those of you who won't have a chance to go out and read the book, I had been on a really strong medication, acne medication that was thought to correlate with mental health issues. I had been using substances, mushrooms, ecstasy, things that we think can correlate. And there's some truth to that, according to my doctor, right? These different um, drugs can interact, maybe amplify mental health conditions. They don't mean that the mental health condition might not be there, but it was, it was um, a potential thing to latch onto, right? And I was having a conversation with my, my doctor, who I refer to as Dr. Z, because I had heard from one of my friends when I was writing the book that our mom was saying, well, oh, I didn't know he was using all these drugs, marijuana, maybe that could have been it. And Dr. Z just said, like, she's right. It could have been it for a lot of people. You think of marijuana as like a chill drug. It like, but for a lot of people, it actually can be a stimulant to like an elevated mood state. And then the, maybe the ultimate red herring was at the time of the diagnosis, the psychiatrist sharing, hey, this is a differential diagnosis. We don't, we don't yet know until we can look back in retrospect. And I guess those words that dad would repeat back to me of like, if Andy is fine for the next five years, it might mean that this was a one-off psychotic break. It might mean that this was related to some of those you know, chemical ingredients. And then the worst possible thing, at least for that narrative, happened, which is nothing happened for five years. In fact, nothing really happened for eight or nine years. So I think that led all of us, me included, to sort of cling to this life raft of an idea, which is that was a one-off. I think that was the hope, and I think it's normal for that to be the hope. And, and then to your point of, hey, would we want to change the story if we could? Maybe at the time there would have been many moments where we would have changed it. But in retrospect, I don't know. And so I've got this saying that I heard somewhere. I stole it from someone, but I love, which is strengths have shadows. And so when a shadow emerges in our lives, it's good to interrogate and know, okay, there's some really bad things about this. No one wants a diagnosis of bipolar one. But what are the, what's the other side of it? What is the potential good that comes of it? And it was, it was Manuela who educated me about this, this Chinese parable of the lost horse, which I now love. And basically in the story, I won't bore you with it. Everything that's good in the story turns out to be bad. Everything that's bad in the story turns out to be good. And it just like keeps looping as an oral history. And the lesson of it is like, be careful when there's good news because there could be a bad side to it. And be careful when there's bad news to assume it's just calamitous because there might be some, some good that comes of it. And so I guess that the Chinese saying is Sai Wang Sherma, which is, refers to this. It's a story about a man who loses his best horse, Mr. Wang. And you say it when you hear good news or bad news. So like I could come home and be like, hey, Monica, I won the lottery. And you would just be like, Sai Wang Sherma. Like maybe that's bad news. Or... I can't believe this. I just got this diagnosis. And you would say, Sai Wang Sherma. Like, we don't know yet. We don't know yet if it's bad or good. And I think it's, it's so true. Both of these things are true. Sitting where you are today and knowing the evolution that we've needed to make as a family in order, I, I think maybe taking it back even one step further, we didn't accept things the first time that things happened. And there was many things that showed they could, that we that could have been bipolar or maybe it was okay, as you described, over the next five to 10 years. Yeah. 
certain things happen, and you'll have to read the book to understand exactly what those were, um, that then really confirmed that. And I don't think there was any denial from any of us at that second point. Do you feel like there's advice that you would give families or parents that are out there? And I talk to parents all the time where, you know, there's mental health issues that can, can emerge at any place. Yeah. Are there things that now you would say to parents, hey, like, this is how to approach some of this, or this yeah. is the lens to think through some of this as people that are listening might be going through something just like this? Yeah, I just learned about this thing called the Stockdale Paradox that I had heard from someone else years ago. It was actually about being a leader. And I actually think it applies to just being a human. And it came from, at least the way I heard about it, was from Ken Chenault, who was one of the first Fortune 50 black CEOs. He led American Express for maybe 20 years. First of all, like made American Express an amazing company and brand and also going through maybe like the ultimate corporate crisis, which was 9-11 and losing, I can't remember, you know, how many employees from Amex perished in, in 9-11. And some point coming out of that, he said, you know what, the job of a leader I can define in like two bullets, four words, create hope, define reality. And the problem with hope and reality, the Stockdale paradox is that they often diverge, right? Reality is often whatever the word is, depressing, challenging, not something that feels like something we can be hopeful about. And so then how do we create hope? But without being, let's say, like in denial or delusional, hope with a counterbalance of reality and reality with the counterbalance of hope. And I think that's what makes these moments so hard when you're like hit as a family with something that you never saw coming, that you didn't expect. And how do you accept it or accept the possibilities of it and also feel hopeful. And I think it's hard to expect anyone to be able to do that, but it, I think that's the journey. I think that's the challenge of being human. How many years have we been on the journey now for? I mean, I don't want to give your age, but I've been on the journey 44 years in terms of my age, but 24 years since, um, since the diagnosis. And so I guess that's the same number for you. <laughs> and what's been the hardest year for you? I think the hardest year was 2016. It was, as you alluded to, it was when the psychosis, the mania that informed the original diagnosis came back. And, you know, the cliff notes are I spent a week in Bellevue Hospital after this, what's called a manic episode. And mania, the, the DSM criteria are racing speech, elevated mood, uh, relentless optimism, uh, grandiosity or some messianic delusion. Basically, think you're God which is part of what makes mania hard to talk about later because you're like, I can't believe people think that I think that. And it took a lot of work with, with Dr. Z for him to explain, like, we actually all live with a God delusion of some kind because as infants, we are gods, right? We cry, we get milk. We cry, we get comforted. If you survive infancy, you were, for a period of time, an omnipotent being. And then at some point in your early childhood, you learn that this doesn't last forever. And it's a horrible realization to learn that we die, that our parents are going to die, that we're going to die. And so we have this like unconscious or subconscious unrealized wish that that's not going to happen to us. And in fact, some people try to actually pursue, you know, pursue immortality. Some people have means it's still talked about. It's what a lot of the religions are about, like eternal life. And then we have culture that helps us with this journey, right? First, Disney kicks in, 
And it's always about an oppressed child who's dealing with something traumatic. And then as soon as we're kind of done with Disney, there's a handoff to Harry Potter, who's, you know, another kid who turns out to have superpowers. And then when we're done with Harry Potter, that's where DC Comics and Marvel kick in with superhero stories. So we're kind of incepted between the popular culture, religious lore, with this idea of being God or immortal or all-powerful. I'm actually reminded of an Alec Baldwin movie called Malice, where he's a surgeon, and someone says, well, like, no, you have a God complex. And he goes, I'm a whatever. I'm a cardiac surgeon. I don't have a God complex. I am God. And this is like funny, funny line. And so it was that 2016 episode where that came back, where the delusion came back, that it was crystal clear what we were dealing with. And, you know, I don't want to spoil the whole story, but ended up in the hospital for a week, finally came down from medication from the, from the mania, and I was ready to deal with it, right? I think we all were. I was 36, had a company with hundreds of employees, had raised $100 million, had an amazing girlfriend. We, we had all, it was a quantum leap from where we were, even as a society in 2000 to 2016. And instead of being able to walk out you know, and deal with it, I walked straight into handcuffs and was arrested and charged with felony and misdemeanor assault. And if that isn't an awesome cliffhanger for the book, I don't know what is. Um, but you know, that, that was then a really hard year. And without going into every detail, you know, six months of catatonic depression that followed in and out of the legal system, wondering if I was gonna lose my girlfriend, wondering if I was gonna lose my job. The only thing I wasn't worried about losing was my family. Right, And that's where a family can be such an anchor. And then to get through all of those things and navigate them. And then like the Cubs won the World Series, you know, six months later. And everything was amazing for the next year, you know, more or less. There were some hiccups, but got married, 10-year anniversary of the company, $300 million exit to Walmart, converted to Judaism. So got like some, some worldview grounding in literally, as you know, only like 20 people knew the real story of the previous year. Was it even that many? It was 20 people. It was maybe 20 people. I, I thought about this once. It was our family. It was the Bonobos executive team who had to know. It was the Bonobos board who had to know. And maybe like a handful of close friends, like a small fraction of close friends, because it's just really hard to talk about. How do you unpack that all? You might even need to write a book to explain the whole thing. <laughs> And so in a way, the book was a way to, not even just with the public, but for people in our lives who we're close to, to be able to explain it. Because it's not such an easy thing to transmit, you know, even over a two-hour lunch, it's just to kind of scratch the surface. And I learned that when the Audible version of the book came out, which is like 13 hours. So that's, that's about how long you'd have to sit down to understand it. And... Um, I guess it's such a privilege to be able to explain something so difficult in your own words, on your own terms, and with the support of you know family and friends close and a broader community. I would wish that on anyone who goes through something hard in their life to have a chance to, to metabolize it and then share it. I feel actually so lucky to have been able to put this out. It was such a catharsis because when you say 20 people knew about it, I think it was our family and people that knew you. Yeah. And for the people that knew me, almost nobody knew about it. Like yeah. I had told nobody. Yeah. And so it was really interesting for people to read the book and really understand, like shocked almost that yeah. 
hey, like you never said that or you never told, but it felt so wonderful to let go of that after all that time. Because I realized part of what I was holding on to was a secret that we just, yeah. that, and you and you felt like you just had to survive, but nobody could really understand what it was that you were surviving. They just yeah. thought it was life as normal. And the, the, the kind of funny thing is like, I've read a lot of the book to Bella, who's now 12, yeah. going on 13. And like the big part that I had to skip was really your college years, to be honest. I yeah. think like the, yeah, there, there's yeah. like a youth version out there, but there was so much about, about you that I think she learned from the book as well. And it's yeah. awesome to be able to have that openness about mental health for this next generation, yeah. which will hopefully approach things in a completely different way. Right. Well, I'm glad to be able to fill in the details on the college years for Bella, who may or may not be in this room. And just to clarify for the, the group, Bella is my niece and Monica's daughter. Yeah, and it's, it's really been fun because now Andy has a wonderful son. I have a wonderful daughter. They get to spend time together. Yeah. To me, that feels like the next generation of Monica and Andy. And I think that's been the gift, really. They've yeah. been the gift through all this, that we survived enough and long enough yeah. to be able to have them, you know, we're working for them at this point. Yeah, maybe it's time to buy Bella and Izzo.com and just see what happens. <laughs> I think that would be great. I'm excited for the next, the next iteration, Andy, in the next 10 years and what's to come, but grateful to have had you by my side this entire time. Yeah, likewise. I, I truly mean I don't think I would have made it, so it's fun to sit here and say, we made it, and we're going to keep making it. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed the episode. I wholeheartedly recommend Andy's memoir to everyone. You can find Burn Rate, Launching a Startup and Losing My Mind, wherever books are sold. You can also find out more on our website, monicanandy.com. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you have a moment today, please subscribe to and share the mentor files with a friend. I'm your host, Monica Royer. See you next time.